Okay, well, let's let's begin in, in prayer, and then we can we can jump in. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for again this opportunity to study your word, and thank you for bringing us through the Old Testament. Um, do pray that we would be well prepared for the New Testament and. Just bless our, our time together this evening, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as you saw on the, um, the messages, we're going to be uh, doing the first... For the first session, we'll look at the last four books of the Old Testament. Okay, so Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And then the second session, I want us to look at the what we call the intertestamental period, the period between the last book, Malachi, and then the coming of uh, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus. Okay. And I think uh, historically people have really enjoyed that, that session because it's, it's not really discussed much. Uh, people don't often uh, learn about that. God's people don't often learn about that. And it's really wonderful to see God's sovereignty in preparing the world for the coming of Christ. Okay, so uh, we'll get to that. Um, but today, well, right now we're going to look at Zephaniah first. So these, uh, Zephaniah is a prophet at the time of um, Josiah. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, first thing, that list there is son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king, so it may well be that Zephaniah is a descendant of um, one of the kings of Judah. Okay, uh, We're not certain of that, but it may well be. But he is a prophet during the time of Josiah. So Josiah is on the throne from... 640 to 609 and he's one of the good kings there are not many good kings but Josiah is one of the good kings and he it's during his time they recover the book of the law and he implements these reforms in Judah uh, restoring temple worship trying to bring the people back to covenantal faithfulness but it's, it's too little too late. The hearts of the people are not there. And you know that within a few years, so uh, 605 already is the first deportation. Remember who goes in that deportation? Daniel. So the Babylonians come in in 605. So just a few years after Josiah dies, the Babylonians come in. Um, there's another deportation in 597, and then 586, that's the important one. The, the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is destroyed, and um, the Babylonian exile. So, uh, Zephaniah is a prophet during the time of Josiah, and uh, also a contemporary of Jeremiah. Remember, we when we did Jeremiah, Jeremiah is also around this time. In fact, he lives through the destruction of, of the temple, and we think he wrote Lamentations. So, um, it's warning about the day of the Lord. Okay, so, um, you, you, 
You can see that in um, verse 7, for the day of the Lord is near. Verse 14 of chapter 1, the great day of the Lord is near. The sound of the day of the Lord. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities. So um, it's a theme of judgment coming upon, upon Judah. Back in verse 2 of chapter 1, the Lord says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. What is that the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea remind you of? If you just hear those phrases. Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Reminds us of creation. So, And if you remember, I mentioned that uh, judgment is often given in what we call uh, de-creation language. It's a breakdown of creation. Okay, so God will, will will destroy what was was good and what He created. Um, and sin always leads to that. It leads to a breakdown in God's creation. Um, there is a uh, a call to seek the Lord in chapter two, verse three. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. And remember, as the prophets speak, the elect are going to listen and the wicked are not going to listen. Okay? So you always find that, that those who belong to God will obey and will seek to walk with the Lord and be humble and fight sin and seek to love God. And there'll be those who reject God. And in... in uh, Israel and Judah, unfortunately, the majority were wicked, even amongst the people of God. Okay. Um, the new covenant is portrayed in much more positive language. Okay. So I don't think that one should look at the church or one's church and say, oh, you know, as I look out, I think most of you are not saved. Okay. I don't believe that. I think it's the other way around that you'd say most are saved. Um, but we're not naive because the Bible is clear that there will also be those who don't know the Lord even within the church. But at the end of time, there will be a great falling away, which we'll look at more when we get to Thessalonians and um, Revelation and Romans, things like that. Okay, so um, chapter 2 then from verse 13 also has an oracle against Nineveh, destruction of Assyria. It will make Nineveh a desolation. So we spent some time with Nineveh last week, with Jonah and Nahum. Chapter 3 is an unnamed city. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Uh, that's Jerusalem. Okay. Jerusalem is, does not listen to God, does not accept any correction, does not trust the Lord. And so the Lord is going to judge her. But there's a promise of um, hope. So verse 9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, and serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Cush. So there's 
a promise of the nations again coming in. Okay? And that's, uh, we've seen that all the way through the prophets, that there is this hope of restoration for Israel and Judah, but within that is the restoration of the nations coming into God. God's plan has always been for the nations to be brought in. Um, so there's a promise of Judah's restoration, um, and it carries on like that. So that's Zephaniah. Again, very similar the pattern. It's obviously, you know, we rush through it, but it's always a pattern of warning, call to repentance, judgment, and then restoration. That's pretty much the pattern for most of the, the prophets. Okay, the next three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are post-exilic prophets. Um, so can I get a cloth to dry with? This one's totally wet. The, so post-exilic, they are after the Babylonian exile. So remember that um, the Lord raises up Cyrus, the Medo-Persian Empire, and they conquer the Babylonians in, in 539. And 538, there's the decree of Cyrus. And he says, look, you can go back and rebuild the temple. And so the, these guys, uh, Haggai and Zechariah, are contemporaries. Uh, as we saw in the historic books with uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, God does frequently sort of send two prophets together uh, to, to work. Um, yeah, so uh, Haggai is concerned with rebuilding the temple. So um, he's around 520 BC. The temple is completed in 516 BC. So the people did start rebuilding the temple and they rebuilt the altar and then they gave up. They were discouraged. I remember there were the other nations around them that were haranguing them. Um, you can understand why they're discouraged. Things are not flourishing. There's enemies, there's difficulties, there's obstacles. And of course, that's the case. When you're going to build God's kingdom, there's going to be enemies and obstacles. Okay, It's going to be hard work. Um, so Haggai is sent by God to encourage them to rebuild the temple. Um, I find it helpful to you with his name, Haggai's. Hey Haggai's, hey let's rebuild the temple. <laughs> okay, so you can remember it that way. Um, and there are four sermons that he gives. So the book of Haggai is made up of four sermons, and they are dated. Each one of them da is dated. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Then go down to verse 10. So there's these two, two sermons, and then he gets two sermons on one day. Uh, verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came. And then 
if you jump down to verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Okay, so it's four, four messages okay, that um, he gives. And um, these prophets are now <clears throat> also wrestling with because remember, we looked at the prophets before the exile, and there was always a promise of a glorious future, okay, of a new covenant, of this wonderful hope. Now the children of Israel have come back into the promised land, and it's still a mess. Okay? It's not amazing. They still sin. They, it's still horrible. There's still problems. So what's going on? Okay? What's happening? Um, and, and so uh, Zechariah will especially deal with that. Okay, okay so um, they're, they're told to, to consider the way that they're living in the first speech. Um, look at verse 4. Is it, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the, this house lies in ruins? So they begin to focus on their own houses and not on the temple. Okay? They become more obsessed with their own lives than God's kingdom. Okay? He says to them, this is what the Lord says, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your full. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Again, the Lord says, consider your ways. So he's really calling them to think. Think about the way that you're living. Okay. Um, it's, not, it's not working for you. You're focusing on yourself. And it, it, it's, life is worse. Okay. And that's always a reality. Okay. The more we focus on ourselves, the more selfish we are, the more unhappy we are. Okay. It's, it's exactly this. The more they're trying to say, well, I'm just going to make my life better and more comfortable, the less they seem to have. Okay? Um, it, it's, it's the people who are, who are the most generous and most kind and most sacrificial who are the happiest, okay? ironically. Um, not, a, you know, not in God's economy, it makes sense, but humanly speaking, it doesn't seem to make sense. You, you know, we're always told to take care of number one and, you know, love yourself and all of these things. And yet the more we do that, we, we become less and less happy. Um, and that's actually God's grace, okay? Because if we were, became truly happy when we were selfish, then we would never, we would never seek to honor the Lord. Okay, so they, they're called to, to not live like that. And they respond with obedience. Um, we're, we're, we're also told about this guy called Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel is actually a descendant of, of David. So again, the, the, the Lord has preserved the line of David. Remember his promise, the Davidic covenant. And of course, it's critical for the Messiah. So if the line of David had been wiped out, and remember, we saw that with even with the Babylonian exile, the Babylonian leaders showed kindness to the Davidic line. And so here it picks up again um, that there is, is this kindness 
Um, and so they start to, to build. Uh, the, the second speech, um, verse 3, who is left, chapter 2, verse 3, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So who saw that Solomon's temple? Okay. Remember, if you've been at, at, at Heritage, we've been going through Chronicles and seeing the glory of Solomon's temple. The whole inside is covered in gold. Okay, must have been incredible to see. Um, and the, the fine stones and the carvings and these massive angels and their wingspan, sort of 10 meter wingspan. And you didn't get to see those unless you were the, the priest, the high priest. Only the high priest got to see that. But um, glorious. And he's saying to them, you know, who here remembers? So there would have been people who were alive at this time. You know, they would have probably been in their, their um, 80s, 90s. So he says, who, who remembers it? How, do you, how does it look now, this new temple? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Okay. The comparison, this new temple is pathetic compared to that one. Okay. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Now, remember what we saw with Ezekiel, that God's presence was dynamic. They thought that it was bound to the temple. So they were, they were very superstitious. They thought nothing bad will ever happen to us because God will never let the temple be destroyed because that's his house. And Ezekiel says, no, I saw God's presence move. Okay. But here, what is God saying to this this humanly speaking, this pathetic little community that's surrounded by enemies that can't build a great building that doesn't have loads of resources. He's saying, I'm with you. My spirit is, is with you. Okay. To encourage them that God is, is with them. And then he talks about judgment. Don't worry in a little while I'm going to, I'm going to judge. I'm going to sort things out. And then he says in verse nine, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house, the latter glory of the temple. Now, what do we know in the new covenant? What is the temple or who is the temple? It's Christ. Eh? So the glory of the, the later temple is, is Christ. It's quite beautiful. Jesus' first miracle. Remember what that is? Uh, water, wine. water into wine. Hey? And um, it says there that his disciples beheld his glory. Okay? Uh, and John is often called the book of glory. Okay? Because glory is a big theme. As you see Christ, you see glory. Okay? And so the glory of the later house is no longer a building, but God himself, God incarnate. Um, and so it's no longer a geographical location, but a relationship with God through, through Christ. Okay. Um, the third speech, he talks about um, 
speaking to the priests, and he says to them in verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. So really what he's showing is that um, holiness is not contagious. So remember the, the, the Levitical laws was if you touched anything unclean, you became unclean. Uncleanness was contagious, but not holiness. And that's reversed in Christ, because remember, Christ is able to touch lepers and make them clean. Okay. Uh, Christ is able to do what, what is not possible humanly. He is able to, to make us clean, to come into contact with sinners like us and not be contaminated himself. He makes us clean. Okay. We don't defile him. Uh, he makes us clean. Um, Okay, and then the last, uh, the last promise, verse, the last sermon, verse 23, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel is the descendant of David. My servant, okay, servant is a strong word that is used in the Bible um, in, in these contexts when it talks about a servant of the Lord. The son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. So a signet ring... Um, showed the authority of the wearer. Okay? So you would push it into the wax. Into the wax. Ah. And that would show that this is the sign of the king. Okay. Mm. So he's saying, you are my signet ring. You are my um, symbol. Zerubbabel. The line of David. Okay. So it's as we've seen in Chronicles, remember the chronicler is trying to Encourage the people to have confidence in the Davidic line. Not to say they're a nightmare and they got us into this mess, but to say God is God, is God and he will, he will keep his promise. Okay, and so he's saying to Zerubbabel, you are my signet ring. You are the one that reveals my authority. Okay, and so, um, for I've chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So again, that ends off with a promise of the Davidic line, that God is still working. Okay, then Zechariah, as I said, he's a contemporary of, of Haggai, so also around the same time, 520 BC. Um, uh, Zechariah, um, as I said, is trying to understand what's going on here. What happened to the prophecies? Because it's still problematic. Okay. Um, it's not glorious. The temple building is not great. There's still all these problems. What's going on? And Zechariah has quite a lot of uh, sort of apocalyptic language. He has these visions. He has eight visions. So chapters 1 through 9 are these visions. And they refer to the rebuilding of the temple. Then chapters 9 through 14 deal with the full restoration. Um, uh, within that are, again, the, the judgments of God's uh, of Israel's enemies and then the last few chapters the coming of the kingdom and it's very Christ centered okay so chapters um, 9 through 14 Zechariah 9 through 14 are the most quoted passages in 
the passion narratives. So the narratives that deal with the sufferings of Christ. Okay? So we'll look at that when we get there. Okay. So Zechariah, while Haggai is concerned with the, the physical temple. So he's saying, guys, hey guys, we need to rebuild this. And they obey and they, they get going and they finish it within a few years. Um, Zechariah is concerned with sort of the, the spiritual rebuilding of the people. Okay. Because it's no use having a building. And this is the problem with Israel before and Judah before. Is, you know, this people draws near with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They would come and do the sacrifices. They would come to the temple. They would honor the temple. But their hearts were far from God. So Zechariah is trying to rebuild the people spiritually. They need to get right with, with God. Um, and so there are these, uh, these visions. Um, uh, which, which deal with God uh, pres- preserving his people making Jerusalem great again, restoration and hope. Um, There is also this uh, vision of uh, Joshua. So if you look at, well, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, uh, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. This is that promise. Remember, you'll be my people and I will be your God. Verse 11, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Again, the promise of many nations coming to the Lord. Uh, And that's what we see in, in Matthew. Go and make disciples of all nations. Chapter 3, verse 1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now, Joshua is Yeshua, and Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua. Yeah, it's Joshua. Okay, so Jesus is a, a Greek transliteration. Um, so Joshua, the high priest, is 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 going to be some point us to Christ because if you look at verse eight, here now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Okay, which book is that from? Do you remember that? The branch, the root. Isaiah. Isaiah. Remember that Isaiah begins with this picture of the forest being hewn down and wiped out. You know, we've seen lots of you know those wildfires recently, and in Hawaii now. That's sort of the picture. It's devastation and there's no hope and there's a promise well there's going to be a, a shoot there's going to be a branch and that's the messiah and so here he's saying to joshua that a sign and the branch as a priest okay so joshua was a priest so christ is the great priest okay um uh, jump over to chapter six Verse 12, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from this from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor 
and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And so here we see this coming together of priest and king. Okay. And that's pointing us to, to Christ. He is prophet, priest, and king, and he is the one who will build the temple. He is the temple, and the church is his temple, and he will, is the temple, and he will build his, his church. Okay, so... Um, chapter 8 again um, verse 20 thus says the Lord of hosts peoples shall yet come even the inhabitants of many cities so again the promise of of the nations, of different, all the peoples coming again, full restoration, as you read through those last few verses. Um, chapter 9 through 14, as I said then, is a, there's uh, mentions of, of Christ and his, his passion. So look at um, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Okay. So that's, that's quoted in Matthew 21. So when the Lord Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it's a fulfillment of his prophecy. The people understood it. They were rejoicing. Remember that they're waving palm leaves. They're crying out, "Hosanna!" They, 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 they know this prophecy. Okay, they understood it. It's just that Jesus did not fulfill their political ambitions. They want. They didn't want a suffering Messiah. They, their concern was not save us from our sins. Their concern was save us from the Roman, the Roman rulers. Save us from Herod. Save us from these Gentiles. Make us great again as a nation and make us rich again. Okay? And that's still the same thing. Many people come to Christ because that's what they want. They just want a, a better life. Okay? Um, and, and uh, of course, if you, you know, who wouldn't want a better life? Okay. If you say, come to Jesus, you know, you'll never get sick. You'll get rich, you won't have problems, you'll be the head and not the tail, and all of those things, the king's kids, and then you know, that appeals to the flesh. Unfortunately, what happens is, you know, when you, when you say you're a Christian and you try to live a holy life, then persecution arises. Remember the parable of the different seeds, or the different grounds. Um, when thorns, and the cares of this life, and the sun, which is persecution beat down then the what happens is people say well this is not what i was promised so they blame the lord they blame christ they say well christianity is a load of rubbish because you know i was promised everything would go well for me and it's not but actually the bible never promises that if you read the new testament over and over again you'll see you know those who will who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Okay, uh, lose your life that you may find it. All of those things. So, so it's all over the place. It's not. 
It's not that the, the Bible is deceitful at all. It never says, you know, plays tricks on us. Like, you know, um, it's always honest that you, that, and you just have to look at the life of Jesus and the apostles and you can see, well, they didn't really have a great lives, humanly speaking. Okay. Every one of the apostles, apart from John, the, uh, John was martyred. John died in exile on the island of Patmos, so not much better, but... Um, <laughs> but he's, di- he's, he's like on a... <laughs> Go and look at what Patmos is on the... On the it's just a rock. <laughs> okay, so... Um, uh, it's it's a... Uh, that the, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, go down to um, chapter 11, verse 13. Or verse 12. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Okay, what is that? Judas. Judas, eh? And what about the potter? Do you remember that? What happened? The potter's field. So after Judas, remember, after Judas betrays the Lord... He's overcome with guilt. And he goes back and he says, here, take the money back. And they say to him, it's quite remarkable, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, because they're willing to put a hit out on Jesus. But then they become, you know, that's blood money. It's not right for us to touch it. (laughs) So they say, well, we can't really take that. Let's let's, uh, buy the potter's field. Mm. And... And so it's a fulfillment of this. He takes it and he throws it into to where they are, the house of the Lord. And they're by the potter's field with it. So uh, that is fulfilled. Um, um, chapter 12, verse uh, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. John tells us about they pierced his side. Okay. The piercing of, of Christ. Uh, chapter 13, verse 7. Halfway through, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And remember, that's what the Lord Jesus said. That it's, it's, um, they, they, when they arrest the Lord Jesus, the sheep are scattered. The apostles run away. Okay. Um, so these are all quoted in, in the Gospels. Okay. Frequently. Um, 
Okay, so there's piercing in ch- at the end of chapter 12. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain, open, a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So piercing leads to salvation. Okay. That there is a fountain opened um, for people to be saved. Chapter 14 then talks about the coming day of the Lord. Um, and remember, as we've said, the day of the Lord is um, is good and bad, depending on your position. If you're right with God, it's good. It's a day of blessing. If you're not right with God, it's a day of judgment. Okay. But here at the end of chapter 14... Um, Verse 20, and on that day they shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord. Okay, so what's going on here is a universalizing of the Mosaic Covenant. So under the Mosaic Covenant, only certain things were holy to the Lord. The priests had a gold sort of Alice band, headband on that said holy to the Lord. The priests were set apart because that's what holiness means. It means to be set apart for special work. And there were certain implements in the temple that were set apart for holy use. But here, a horse, and a horse was an unclean animal. So it's saying that which is unclean will become clean. Even a horse will be inscribed like the priests holy to the Lord. And all the pots, all the common pots, just this, you know, a glass and pots and pans in a house will be like the implements in the temple. So what it's saying is there's a time coming and really it's picturing in, in Old Testament language, a new heaven and new earth where everything will be holy and pure. There will be nothing unclean anymore. Okay. So it's a very poetic, sort of beautiful way through the Mosaic Covenant of viewing the new heaven and new earth. Okay. Revelation says that, doesn't it? It says at the end that nothing unclean will be allowed in there. Okay. The wicked will not be allowed in there. There will never be anything unclean in the new heaven and new earth. And we who were unclean are clean because of Christ. We will be there and um, it will be glorious. Okay. Um, so what's going on is the Lord is saying, okay, um, it's not yet. Okay. Lord, we're back in the land and it's still problems. What's going on? It's still coming. Okay. It's not yet arrived. Okay. Keep serving me. Keep obeying me. Um, keep my law. But the time is coming. Okay. Okay. Then we come to the last book. Chronologically, it's uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. Remember, it's exactly the same. Just the order is different. Malachi is not the last book. Um, I think it's Chronicles, if I remember correctly. But chronologically, Malachi is the last book. Malachi is around about the 400s BC. Okay. So we were 520, so this is a few generations later. Okay. 
Um, the um, and that's uh, almost in the intertestamental period. Yeah. So this is the last book, and then after that is the intertestamental period. Um, so Malachi. Um, his name means messenger, and so he's a messenger. He's he's the last prophet. Even the Jews themselves said that after Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, God removed his spirit. There were no more prophets. Okay. So the the Jews themselves acknowledged this. Okay, they understood that because Malachi ends with one of its main themes is. I will send my messenger before that day. Okay. And he says that messenger will be Elijah. Okay. So we'll look at that now. But um, uh, so Malachi is, is, is writing later. And again, we're seeing the same problems. God's people still have terrible sin. There's still issues here. Um, and Malachi is written in a, in a uh, what, what is called disputation method. Oops. Disputation. So it was sort of a rhetorical device. So it, disputation meant a, there was a statement made, then an objection is given, and then the answer. Okay, so look at um, so verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord that to Israel by Malachi. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Okay, that's the statement. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not this, uh, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? So there's the objection. How have you loved us? Here's the answer. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So what the Lord, is, what the Lord does here is he makes a statement. Then the objection is, this is what you, you say. And then the answer, and the answer is, the Lord is saying, I loved you, I love you. They say, how have you loved us? So the Lord says, look what I've done to Esau. Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? Look, I have destroyed the Edomites. Okay. Remember, we saw that with Obadiah. The promise of judgment on them, they hid in um, Petra, those rocky outcrops. They said, nobody can hurt us here. And... Um, um, the Lord says, so look at what the Lord says. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Okay. So the Lord is saying, how do you know? They're saying, how do we know that you love us? Well, I've preserved you and I've destroyed Esau. Okay. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. How, how do you know I love you? Because I have preserved you. I have not destroyed you. After all their sin, God has preserved them. Okay. Um, then he talks about how they've dishonored him. Verse 6. A son honors his father and his servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? O priests, you despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? So you see, there it is again. 
You guys have despised my name. How have we despised your name? This is how. Verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. When you offer those that are lame or sick. Remember, it was always to bring the best. Okay, A, a lamb without spot or blemish. That was what you were supposed to bring. You weren't to bring, you know, sure, won't get a good price for this one. I think I'll, I'll give that one to the Lord. It was supposed to be costly to bring the best. They're despising the Lord. They don't honor the Lord. Um, um, okay, chapter 2. The, the, the judgment. Um, <clears throat> verse 7, he says this to the priests. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So the priests were supposed to instruct God's people. But they weren't doing that. You, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Uh, one of the, <clears throat> you know, this is very similar to pastors. Okay? Pastors are to instruct God's people and to teach them the truth and not to show partiality. So, uh, not to have favorites. So, you know, I like this person, they can get away with sin, but I don't really like this person, we're going to deal with the sin in their life. Okay? God hates partiality. Okay? Um, okay. Um, so, a warning there to the priests. And then he talks about idolatry, and then he says there's a second thing that's happened here. Verse 13, and the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? So why doesn't the Lord accept their tears and their prayers? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Covenant is an important word in, in Malachi. And here he deals with the, the marriage covenant. Okay. He says then, verse 15, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Okay. Very difficult to translate the, the Hebrew, um, but seems to be, you know, obviously the be, being one and that the Spirit of God brings husband and wife together, and he's with them. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Okay. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So the picture of God hating divorce, these men were leaving their wives, they were divorcing them, they were being unfaithful to them. And the Lord is saying, well, I'm not going to hear your prayers if you're going to be faithless to your spouse. I'm not going to listen to you. Um, and what he's saying here is, uh, what does God want? He wants godly offspring. Okay? So he wants children who know the Lord. It's very difficult to have that if there's unfaithfulness. Okay? It's in a safe, secure, loving environment that 
children uh, find security and see the love of Christ. And he's, uh, is he just speaking from a practical point of view? Or is he saying, like, or is he being like absolutely literal that these kinds of marriages will produce unlikely? No, no, it's not a law. Okay. It's okay. ordinarily. So, so uh, it's an interesting thing because historically, for generations, it's only really in the last couple of hundred years, maybe, uh, in, in, in countries influenced by the gospel, mm. the understanding of marriage was marriage is there uh, an act of love, but it's love where you sacrifice so that you can create a safe environment for children for the next generation and for f- human flourishing. Mm. It has then become a, w- where I find self-fulfillment. Okay? Mm. So it's about me, not not the family. And so, yeah, I think that's what he's getting at. Um, you men, you are not being faithful. And what does God want? God's one? God wants godly offspring. Okay? Oh, okay. And to have that, there needs to be faithfulness. And oh, okay. um, Now, uh, it is interesting that Genesis begins with marriage, and then Malachi ends with with marriage as well and warnings about divorce. And then the revelation also ends with the marriage, hey, the marriage feast of the Lamb. So it's this picture all the way through. Now, um, we've seen that there are legitimate times for, for divorce. Okay, So it's not uh, to be condemned, there's forgiveness, all of those things. But this was a sin that was common at the time. And um, Malachi deals with it. And God hates it. It's not something to be taken lightly. Okay, um, the Lord says, uh, you've wearied, verse 17, you've wearied me with your words, but you say, how have we wearied you? Everyone does what is evil. Um, verse three, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here there's a prophecy saying, I'm going to send my messenger before he's going to prepare the way and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So it's quite remarkable. His prophecy is, I'm going to send a messenger and then the Lord himself will come to the temple. Okay. Yes. Look, uh, then go to chapter 4. Um Verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah. So, the messenger. Then we're told it's Elijah. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children 
and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation. Uh, saying, uh, I was saying Elijah, there's no metaphor, that like uh, symbolic, it's not actually Elijah. Yeah, so turn... It's not the spirit of Elijah in John Baptist. Uh, go to Matthew 17. Um, so it's the Mount of Transfiguration, verse 9, Matthew 17, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. It's funny, Jesus tells them all these things. They don't, like he's just told them, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Uh, he tells them over and over again, the Son of Man must suffer many things and die, but rise again. They, they, they just block it, like... We, we, we've got no paradigm for that. Um, but anyway, verse 10, And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So they're remembering this. Why, does, why do they say Elijah must first come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man certainly will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Yeah. So it's in the spirit of Elijah. Um, type of Elijah. Remember we saw with Elijah, John the Baptist, they also, the, the way they dressed, being in the wilderness, wild men. So, um, Sorry, what uh, chapter of Malachi does it speak of? It's chapter 4, verse... Verse 5. So, but it's, okay. But it's, it's not written as something. I mean, it's written, it seems to be written as something we should take literally. Um, like a literally Elijah will come again, like that, you mean? Yeah, I don't know, because like from what I've learned, it seems like, like you can also just look at the No, I, th- I think that the Bible, when it comes to people, okay. like you know, the restoration of David's throne, well, it's not David literally who comes again; it's Jesus. Okay. Okay. So it will it it uses it typologically when it comes to people often. Okay. So, and the Bible is very, does, is very against the reincarnation, so yeah, they would not uh, support mm-hmm. it. But in verse 27, you'll live one life and be judged. Yeah, Elijah's taken up, you know, that's a uh, and he's there at the Mount of Transfiguration, but um, Jesus is the one who gives us the interpretation. So, either way, we're looking for Elijah. Okay, Jesus says, Well. Now we understand, actually, it's John the Baptist who is Elijah. It's, it's typological. So the New Testament often gives us the understanding of the old. Okay. So we, we, we need to, to give primacy to that. But the Hebrews are obviously thinking that Elijah himself is going to come again. I don't, I'm That's not why sh- they didn't recognize John the Baptist as Elijah until Jesus said it. Yeah, they, they, I mean, they're asking the question, yeah. Why did the scribes say Elijah must first come? 
Um, and so... They were expecting literal too. Well, I don't know what they were expecting. They're, they're trying to figure it out. They're asking, why did the scribes say this? What, what does it mean? Um, another part is here, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. In Luke chapter 1... We have the birth of John the Baptist foretold from verse 5. Um, uh, and we're told about him, he will be great before the Lord, verse 15. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the past of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel actually prophesies, takes the quote from, from Zechariah to say he will go in, this, in the power of Elijah and he will do these things. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So um, I don't know how well known this prophecy was, but you know, if it had got out, or if, if it had just been kept, Elizabeth sort of kept it to herself. But here we're told, you know, this is John the Baptist, is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. So we end the Old Testament with a promise of a messenger who's going to come and prepare the way in the spirit of Elijah. And we begin the Gospels with John the Baptist and the prophecy of, of doing this. So the Old Testament, we're left hanging with someone who's going to come and prepare the way for the Lord to come to his temple. And Christ does come to his temple, but they reject him. And he is crucified outside the camp. He is expelled. Um, okay, so that's where we're left in the Old Testament. Okay. So let's take, take a break now. And then... Uh, uh, We'll come back in sort of 15, 20 minutes and look at the intertestamental period. Should we continue? Until Matthew.